Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wurundjeri Country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Nicole Kirby. This is the symbol of both our oppression and our refusal to give up our desires. Because we were considered sexual deviants, by law, Sex, politics, resistance, activism and passion are at the core of Joan Nestle's life. With a life that spans across eight decades, Joan has been involved in political campaigns and resistance for most of her life. Joan's an incredibly generous and thoughtful character and one of those rare figures who deserve to be called an elder in their community. She's made it her business to write about life on the margins, where she's embraced resilience and autonomy, A working-class Jewish femme lesbian, Joan was born in the Bronx in 1940 and came of age in New York's underground butch femme bar scene, drinking whiskey and dodging police raids. I spoke to her about that time and about her entry into political life, into campaigns like civil rights, feminism and gay liberation. And I soaked up the words of a wise elder. Here's a conversation with Joan Nessel about a passionate life of resistance. But first, just let me say, my, as you can tell from my voice, my life and my history is an American-based one, and even more. I was born in the Bronx in 1940, Jewish working-class mother. I never knew my father. Um, So the story I will tell is of a unique place, but it will have resonances. If I start telling my story, I'm telling the story of social movements, and so, and I'm telling the story of marginalization. So let's say I'm born in 1940. I enter what I call public queer life in 1958. That means finding the butch femme bars of Greenwich Village, the policed bars, the mafia-run bars, the criminalized bars, um, and I was already out in the world as I was started work when I was 13 and I was living on my own when I was 17. All of what I'm trying to say is that all these moments, all these walkings of dark streets late at night where women were not supposed to be is the counter-narrative to invisibility, to victimization, to all the things because we had to find the places and we had to run the risks, and we had to take on the police, and we had to take on the state. And we did it with developing sense of self. So in the bars, let's say the sea colony, which I love that play on colonization, you know, that I went to, a working class butch femme bar, I met women who were, all, so let's say I'm 17, I met women who were in their 40s and 50s, who had been living a queer life for decades already. Um, now I'm beginning to see that there's a sort of mythic tale that we were invisible in the 40s. We, we were not invisible. And in fact, in some ways, we were stronger then than we are now because we had to be. Desire is not easily defeated, you know. And I would say if I would recreate my how I saw myself in my coming out history or entering that public life, I would call it 
in the 50s, I was a freak. That's how we were seen by, we were sexual deviants, these words, and I, but I like the word freak, and that's what we were. And doctors, I even remember my mother taking me when she suspected I was a lesbian when I was around 14. She took me to a doctor, and he said, yes, there's something wrong with your daughter. She has too much facial hair. She has a biological abnormality. This concept of the word freak, and then you go into the 50s, which is the McCarthy America, which is any deviance of any kind, but you had it here, the anti-communist movement, becomes a national act of treason. So all of these things are going on, and so I, I and others celebrated our marginality. Mm-hmm. We celebrated being freaks. And I think it's interesting that the word queer now has become the popularized word, but not the word freak, because I think people are still terrified of that concept of having somehow, of being another life form, almost. But in some ways, it was very uh, revealing, and it was a great source of courage and of of torment. Mm. But life, if you're working class... So all of this goes together, okay? Mm. If you're working class and queer or freak, you, you've already learned in some ways to turn shame into autonomous action, okay? to make oneself. If you're working class, you always have to find ways to create meaning for yourself in a world and I'm talking about New York, and I know, but that tends to denigrate working-class people, okay? And particularly if you don't have family support, which many queer women didn't mm-hmm. in the 50s and before. So anyway, so there's that part of my life. So I'm living a criminalized life in these bars, police, and I, as I said, I've written about this, but and many other women of that time, and one by one, you know, we're dying, actually. We're passing from... We're passing from the stage, if I may put it that way. So this is very precious to, mm, to, to look into is. your eyes and to look into this technology. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> You were talking about that 1950s bar scene and how it was criminalised. Yes. Can you paint a picture of it for me and for people listening what was it like and well, how did you discover it as a 17-year-old woman who I imagine, you know, I imagine that knowledge of where people met wasn't necessarily that easily come by. No, but you see, well, there was. I mean, we knew culture permeates, you know, and it permeates, it, 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 it's sort of in the air. So in the 50s, there were all these code words for queer people that we use sometimes on television or this, you know, what I'm doing now is I would wet my pinky and run it over my eyebrow. Well, that was a very 50s, 40s, oh, you know, he's like that. It was used for gay men. Uh, But so I just, one, I would go to Greenwich Village because that's where homos were, as they would say, and I would cruise the streets. We were great cruisers, and to cruise means you read the streets. You read the haircut. You read the stance of the shoulders. You read the pinky ring. You read. And that's what I did from like 15 on. I'd walk Greenwich Village streets until I saw a woman 
okay? And she, and I was young, she probably, so I thought, ooh. But she was probably like 25, right? And she had a DA, that's a, uh, we used, it's kind of haircut that young gay butch women had. It's called a duck's ass. It means their hair went back in a certain way. And her whole stance. Um, and I followed her. So I followed her into a place, okay, again, very New York identified, but translate this for every lesbian woman listening or a curious woman into how, uh, how can I put, how cultural communities make their way to needed places, you know. With, so I followed her into a little, into a, an all-night coffee place on 6th Avenue. And I sat down. She sat a little while away from me. And she just looked up and she said to me, Ah, oh, huh, so was there any action at the sea colony tonight? Now, I had never been to the sea colony. But I, and I felt, I was so proud. She knew I was queer or she knew I, and, um, and I defined as a femme. But when I walked the streets, I was a tough femme. I wasn't a, what we call a high femme. This is a whole other conversation. But I was an independent woman. Okay. So I, I lied and I said, oh, it's just, you know, it's still early. <laughs> but I made it my business to find out. I just looked it up. I mean, where the sea colony was. And so that started my, you know, like over a decade of going to this working class bar. And I'll, to capture it, as I've said, there's a piece I wrote called The Bathroom Line. These bars were theater. They were bedrooms. They were community gatherings. They were warfare. They were erotic. They were political before there was the political movement in a way. But the movement, like the gay liberation movement in New York, came out of these bars in ways. But so this is the symbol of both our oppression and our refusal to give up our desires. Because we were considered sexual deviants, by law, because in New York at that time, and you may have had something like it here, there were things called the vice squad, the morality mm -hmm. squads, mm -hmm. and they would regularly raid these bars. But they, they had a payoff. The police were all in it. It was all corrupt. And, but what they had to do to get to be allowed to remain open was make sure we only went into the bathroom one woman at a time. That's going to sound like a very little thing. And I always said my histories have been built on very little things. But, um, and so there was a butch woman whose job it was every night to wrap around her fist our allotted amount of toilet paper to make sure, because the reason we were not allowed to have sexual contact in this bathroom. So there was something called a bathroom line. Now, this is what the bar looked like. If I, and you'd have to, it's Abdington Square in the village. It's uh, all blackened windows so nobody can see him. There's a tough, uh, and we loved him, Tony at the bar. He was our mafia protector because it was their business interest, right? Uh, every uh, In the front, there were two rooms. In the front was a, a bar that, and I mean, Maria from Barcelona was a very handsome bartender who took care of us all. I'm getting <laughs> little <laughs> chills, wonderful chills, as I say it. And, and um, he would, and then there were some chairs and tables, and that was for straight people, straight people who wanted to come and look at the freaks. So they would sit there, um, it was a little raised space, but then they didn't, there was another, we walked in and there was a back room, and the back room was for us, and the back room had a red light over it, and the back room was where we danced and drank and flirted and had vertical sex. 
But the police would come in almost every night for their payoffs. So what would happen is the red light would start flashing. We all knew this was the dance, the dance with the state. And it could turn violent at any time, and it often did. Um, and we were meant to sit down because dancing together was illegal. So you sat at your tables, the police, big guys came in for their pay if they look over it. But some nights it was fine, but sometimes they they would decide to take on a butch woman, particularly if she was with a very beautiful woman. And there, so there would be these terrible encounters. And I, I talk about how I remember putting my fingers through the loops of my, my and I'm going to say my butch my my butch's pants to hold her in her seat because if she gave in to her rage butch women were raped butch women were taken out and you know things like drop your pants you want to see what kind of man you are I mean these just went on so there were all these there were these moments of intrusion of of dehumanization that we lived all around us but in the midst of that, on this bathroom line where we all had to stand every night because we were all drinking beer, you know, you have to pee a lot and all of this. So there's this bathroom line. That's an aesthetic of deviants, an aesthetic of freaks. So there's this bathroom line, women. And we know that we, our lady, as we called her, would only let us in one woman at a time. But we flirted on that line. We would joke with her. We, we made an act out of our oppression. We made, we retrieved it by translating it into our own resistances. And, and we were young. Some of us were very young. And there's a wonderful, there's a writer, Lee Lynch, who writes a story. How did she get there? Well, she lived up in the Italian part of the Bronx with her grandmother. So she would leave the house dressed in her parochial school clothes, right? And she's written her what's made into a play. She'd get on the train, and as the train, it's almost like the stages of the cross, as the train went down to the village, she would turn the collar down. She would take, well, she, she, there's bathrooms in these places. So she would little, little by little de sort of normalize herself. Till that time when she reached, which would have been like maybe a half hour later, she got out of that train as a 1950s butch. <laughs> and where we made love, because many of us, I, I ha already was living on my own, but many, we made love in public toilets. We made love in church alcoves. We made love any place we could find. So there was all of that going on. And at the same time, we were in a country where deviancy was seen as a communist threat. I mean, so, but what I want to emphasize, because I'm a little, now this is where the 75-year-old Joan comes in. I think we, and, and this is funny, and I, I don't think we, we go too easily to, how can I put this? I don't think we're aware of how strong we are and can be and were without state protection. And I think this is something, you know, I'm not a pro-marriage queer woman. Mm. And part of it is my whole background. Why would I want to give the state that I, I had to take, I had to duck from and swerve from and take hits from all my early years. And now, when there's more safety than ever, 
in some ways. Why do we want to turn all that autonomy over to the state so the state can make, we can serve in the army and you know, we can do all the things the state wants us to do. Whereas my whole, my whole way of being queer was we exist in opposition to the state. Which it didn't mean we didn't have lives. That, you know, I was a teacher from 1963 on, and, mm-hmm. and that's a whole other part of this. But, but those bars, those, quote, terrible old days, I wouldn't trade them for anything. Yeah, there was a sort of um, resistance and a power that you claimed back in a space that you made your own unequivocally in those times, even when that was denied to you in a way. And because... because Butch femme women appeared, and not all gay people at that time were butch femme women, okay? So there are many styles and other styles, and particularly in lesbian feminism comes in, there's the androgynous styles, and that's a whole other thing. Um, but it was, the, the anger on the streets towards butch femme women was precisely because we represented what seemed like an autonomous uh, world that didn't seem to need men. And so the anger was, so who's the man? Who, you know, we were always being translated into what they thought they saw, which were replicas of hetero, mm. heterosexuality. But they weren't. They were a unique cultural creation mm. of a marginalized, freakish, and I want to use that word, people. Um, you want to reclaim the word freak in the same way that the word queer has yeah, been reclaimed. I have, and I do use queer now. I use it in its postmodern sense, and I've learned every decade almost I learn a new language. And I don't, it's never a matter of, oh, once I was this, and now I left that all behind, and now I'm this. Never, never, never. And I, I would say to everybody, never Never walk away from that which gave you insight, from that which gave you the courage to touch, from that which has meaning to you, whether it's a family background, ethnicity, and you just will cheapen everything in your life by the end of your life if you do that. On Community Radio Around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. I'm Nicole Kirby. You're hearing from Joan Nessel, author and activist, His work includes a restricted country and the persistent desire. Joan's written about being a Jewish, working-class, femme lesbian. We're talking about a formative time in her life, being part of the underground lesbian bar scene in New York in the late 1950s. You started in that 1950s bar scene and you became involved in civil rights movements and the gay liberation movement and I'm really interested in that part of your life as well. Okay, now what I want to read from, there's a, uh, a collection called the Feminist Memoir Project and we haven't even talked about feminism yet. I couldn't have gotten through the 50s if I wasn't my own kind of feminist. So this is the Feminist Memoir Project and it's Voices from Women's Liberation edited by Rachel Plout Duplessis and Anne Snittow. So my piece is called A Fem's Feminist History. But I just want to read to you the time when two worlds clashed, the old one and a new one being born. So I'm sitting, it's around 1963 or 64, and I'm sitting in an old-time bar called Cookies on 14th Street. So this is what happened. 
And I've talked about, already I had been involved in the civil rights movement and I had been involved in the anti-war movement, all of that stuff, in the anti-McCarthy movement, but I had, but never yet in a gay rights movement, okay? So I'm sitting in the bar and, but that night in Cookies, I was sitting at my table, putting my desire before my social knowledge, just wanting to be with the community I had known for over 10 years. Hunched over my drink, making conversation while my skin picked up every movement around me, I suddenly heard the sounds of a demonstration, a sound I knew so well but never thought to hear in this world, the lesbian bar. I looked up to see a group of young women dressed in jeans and flannel shirts, waving flyers and Cookie's face while she shoved them toward the door. I watched as from a distance. How could this be happening in my outlaw world? These were women, not police. What was the nature of their intrusion? This is how feminism entered my world, forcing me to bring together what I had learned from the two previous decades, that desire, even police desire, could create worlds, and that political communities could change worlds. So this is literally what happened. The new world walked into my old 50s bar. So I, well, as I go on, I've picked up one of those leaflets, and I showed up the next week. And now they, again, this is New York-centric, and but there was an old firehouse that became the site of a gay liberation. So I joined the Gay Activist Alliance, and then I became part of the Lesbian Liberation Committee. It all started to flow. But I was a bar woman in the new world, and there was already conflict between... So we're talking now, we're in the early 70s, 71, 72, so you have um, lesbian, radical lesbian feminists who didn't appreciate the bar history and culture, and many of the women from the bars never made it into the new world of consciousness raising groups and of because they were not welcome and if but a few of us did because i knew we need each other's past we need to know how rigidity of political purpose can sometimes do terrible damage to the very thing we want to keep alive which is the enormous resiliency and I'll use every word, women, queer, femme, butch, trans lives, all of it. Because the bar, see, the bar life was a public community, which mm -hmm. is incredibly political if you think of it at its time. And then comes the civil rights movement. Women on the line. It was the success and the courage of the civil rights movement that informed the gay liberation organizations because we did public actions. We called them saps. So we would show up at, at a, like a dance that gay people weren't allowed in or same, and we'd kiss or something. This is back in like 1972. So we used direct action techniques and I was lucky enough to be have been part of the civil rights movement to have been on the march from Selma to Montgomery to... Which is an incredibly historic moment. It is, and I, I talk about it in a piece in a restricted country in which I say I didn't come out then as a lesbian because you have to, it was an incredibly complex time living it with an African-American family in Selma 
meeting every day at Brown's Chapel, going on voter registration work, work in the back roads of Alabama and being stopped by armed sheriffs. Ooh, and that's to register black Americans yes, to, to vote. Share, yes, to sharecropping mm. families. And I felt, and this is what I say, that the history that was happening around me was so huge. I just, I didn't feel it was important to draw attention to myself as a queer woman, as it would have done in, in many un- unsettling ways. But when I write about, when I say later, when I knew there was a real breakthrough, the, the Lesbian History Archives, which started in 19, talked about in 73, started in 74, we were always involved in po- larger political struggles, which is something else. So we were involved, again, against America's imperialism in Nicaragua. We were involved in the anti-apartheid movement. And then I write, and then I decided, okay, never again would I be part of historical struggles not fully clear, not fully out, whether as a Jew, which sometimes is even harder because, because as I, I like, like now, you know, if, if you say to me, what is my most pressing concern, and I have to say this every time I have public space, it is Israel's occupation of Palestine. So I'm another deviant. I'm a deviant Jew. And all these facets of self now, have to be looked at clearly by in coalition, so no one is hiding anything. Mm. I think there are big there are big world issues waiting for all our energies as out queer trans what however we call ourselves, you know um, so this is almost over. Mm. <laughs> Let me just say one thing then. What writing has given me the chance to do is to commemorate erotic moments that really form a people's history. And I was just thinking of Esther, a passing woman. It was a woman who passed as a man. Passing women were lesbians who passed as men in the 40s, 50s, so they could have jobs that um, women wouldn't be hired for. So they were taxi drivers. They were stock boys. They were... And uh, I had picked us. Uh, we we had picked each other up in the sea colony, and she was much. She was um, from Puerto Rico, and she was much older than I, and a very classic, butch, wiry, small woman with perfectly perfect creases in her pants. And I made her dinner and all this. Anyway, the mo- the moment that I get to write about now, maybe this my work should disappear from the world but if you ever find your way to it there's my saying thank you to this older butch woman and this rite of passage where she wanted to give me pleasure and she was the first sexual partner who said said, I'm going to place this pillow below your hips so I can rise I can raise you to my lips and that moment and I don't know but of learning expert of, of a woman sharing and teaching me the expertise that could give us the most pleasure. And so to be a writer, now writers can write about or anything, right? But that I have on a page, if somebody makes their way to it, Esther, who is... Esther, who... 
I, I now know is no longer alive, that her courage to touch me, not afraid of my youth, I was a little afraid of her, her age because what it represented was that she had lived many years as a freak. And I knew I was just beginning. So, Nicole, I'm very grateful that you gave me this opportunity. That's all for Women on the Line today. You've been hearing from Joan Nessel, author and activist. Joan's the author of many books, including The Persistent Desire, A Restricted Country, and A Fragile Union. Her books are out of print, but they can be tracked down, and they're well worth the effort if you can find them. In those pages, you can read more about her life and the lives of other women, other lesbians and women on the margins. Joan was also one of the founders of New York City's Lesbian Her Story Archives. She now lives in Melbourne with her partner. I hope you enjoyed catching up with her as much as I did. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne, and it's broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so please send us an email to womenonthelion at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 And you can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. Just look up Women on the Line. All our programs can be downloaded from our website, www.3cr.org.au slash womenonthelion. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. You've also heard music from Mia Dyson. I'm Nicole Kirby, and it's my last show for Women on the Line for a while, as I'm heading to Jakarta to hit the airwaves there. Thanks for joining me on the show. It's been a pleasure being with you. And don't forget to keep tuning in for more Women on the Line from the rest of our wonderful team. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.